There are probably few images as familiar to people the world over as those cartoons we see of Cupid drawing back his bowstring and letting fly an arrow towards someone. How many of you have ever seen an image like that someplace? Right, what happens when the arrow strikes its target? What happens? Love happens, right? Not just ordinary love. Hubba hubba love. A hunk of hunk of burning love, right? The kind of love that uh, Beyonce sings about and uh, dances about and the kind of love that Nicholas Sparks writes about and that uh, Marvin Gaye croons about. It's passionate love. It's the kind of love that uh, sweeps over us and leaves us in a amazing position of, of rapture and wonder. Love is a many splendored thing. It is beautiful when it touches us with affection, when it gives us a, uh, a, an enjoyment of the peculiarities and the individuality of the people that we meet. Love is even more magnificent when it endows us with friendships, uh, filial love as the Bible uh, calls it. It's an enormous gift when it gives us even a few really best friends in life. But when love comes and touches us, when it pierces us with the arrow of romance, that is something at another level indeed. How many of you know where the figure of Cupid actually came from uh, historically? Does anybody know uh, where Cupid hails from? Cupid was the Roman god of romance. Uh, it's like the American god... Um, uh, the Rock, who I gather is now the sexiest man alive, uh, according uh, to the most recent um, surveys. Um, the Greeks called this god of love Eros, E-R-O-S. Uh, that's the term from which we get our word uh, erotic, as in erotic dancer, true confession. Uh, before I was a follower of Jesus Christ, I dated an er erotic dancer. Uh, no, no, she was a neur neurotic dancer. That's right. She just... <laughs> She would never get off the dance floor. I was, I was exhausted and wanted to sit down. <sighs> Glad I cleared that up. Um, but I mentioned that word erotic for specific reasons because it's important to understand that for many, many people, romance and sex uh, seem just to go together. They seem to be the two hands of the experience of love of that particular nature. Uh, how many times in movies do you, do you see um, a, a, a man and a woman who have gone through some kind of adventure together or who are out on the adventure and there's a quiet moment, they're all alone and they turn and they look into each other's eyes and you can just sense there's something happening there and you just know what's going to happen next. You're going to have to cover up the eyes of the kids. Uh, in the movie theater. You're watching on television and, and, and your programming is interrupted by an advertisement and it shows this silver-haired, patrician-looking gentleman, uh, very athletic, uh, in the presence of an obviously younger woman who probably has even more energy than he has. And the voiceover comes on when you know the time is right. <laughs> Have we got something to help? It's like... Romance and sex just go together. And that's partly true. 
uh, as I'll say more in, in just a moment. Uh, but it's also partly untrue. Uh, and if you think about it, it's important to recognize the, the not-trueness of that statement to understand the fullness of what love is really all about. Uh, there are people who have sex with each other that have little or no romance about it. In fact, as soon as the sex act is completed, they, um, they'd really prefer not to have to look at each other. They'd pr probably prefer to, to, to leave each other. And conversely, there are, are people who have amazing romance where actual sexual congress is, is really not a part of the picture at that point. Uh, but there's this uh, remarkable thing that is enveloping them and, and binding them closer and closer together. Uh, for this particular reason, the very brilliant thinker C.S. Lewis that we've been uh, traveling with, one of the mentors for us in this series on the four loves, uh, says that it's probably even helpful to not call sex eros at all. Uh, it's probably more useful to call the sexual desire part of romance by a different name. And he chooses the name Venus, as in the goddess um, that we know by that name. Uh, Venus is what George Michael is voicing when he says, I want your, oh, come on, you got to get around. <laughs> I want your sex, he's saying. Uh, he's talking about Venus there. Now, Venus can be an important component of Eros, but romantic love is a larger and greater thing than Venus. Now, I don't want to minimize the role that sex plays. In fact, I, I want to just really validate the role that sex plays in, in a relationship. Um, there's been a lot of bad teaching, frankly, over the years, often in churches about this particular topic. It's made us uncomfortable even to talk about uh, sex in religious communities. Uh, and and the, the teaching sort of uh, vectors towards an attitude that wants to suggest that sexual desire, if you're letting sexual desire rise and you're giving yourself over to the animal in you, and if you could just stomp that thing out, crush it, deny it, push it away, that would be voicing the angelic desire in you. Uh, how many of us have been exposed to, to teachings like that? that uh, to, to deny so the sexual appetite is to, be more, is to be more angelic. That is just wrong, okay? That is just wrong. I, can't, I don't know what angel, angels do all day long, but, but I, from my vantage point, as I read my way through the scriptures, it is so clear that sexual desire and the, the, the life that, that it can bring about within the covenant between two people is one of God's greatest gifts of all. It's one of the very good things that, that God did in creation. Uh, it's one of his sweetest gifts to us along the way. We, God should get an award for having invented that. I and mean, we give awards for like records and movies. I mean, and the winner is God and all of us, right? This is like an amazing gift, uh, the gift of 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 sexual desire and, and connection with somebody else. Sex matters a lot. Uh, it matters f for one thing because sexual relationship, sexual passion is par part of the body's share in marriage, which is by God's design intended to be a preparation for us 
for our ultimate union with God. Uh, marriage is this, is this training ground, in a sense, for an even greater kind of union. And so the pleasure and the play and the exploration and the intimacy that goes on in, in good sex is, in a sense, a training process for the ultimate kind of rapturous union and discovery and awakening and relationship we're going to know one day with God. In fact, when we know it that, in that dimension, we probably are going to think sex was boring by comparison. Uh, that's just how uh, amazing is this union coming with God. Secondly, sexual desire matters because it is the river that leads to the awesome possibility of producing another human life and the awesome responsibility of actually caring for children. So sexual desire has to be taken very, very seriously because of the potentiality it has for driving us towards those outcomes. And, and needs to be held thoughtfully and responsibly. Thirdly, sex matters because the union between two people sexually has an impact upon the souls and the sentiments of those partners. There, there is something that happens in the interchange uh, uh, of, the, of the sexual relationship that, that leaves us bonded and connected to that other human being in a very sublime kind of way. And you can't just glue two people together for a few minutes or hours and then rip them apart and send them their separate ways and think that that's not going to have consequences. It, it, it's, they're going to be bound in some way. They're, it's going to create a tear in some way um, that needs to be thought through very carefully. Uh, before we use this power, this, this enormous um, potentiality. Sex is sacred stuff. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's powerful, sacred stuff. So one way of thinking about the relationship between sexual desire and romance is that Venus yearns for consummation, uh, consummation with the body, while Eros, the larger thing, yearns for communion with the beloved. Okay, one's about consummation, a momentary satisfaction, and the other is all about this move towards a deeper kind of communion with the whole of the other person's life. Romance may contain sexual desire for the other, often does, but it is the passion to truly know the other in all of their complexity and wonder, at many levels of their being, it's that larger passion that is the preeminent one with Eros. Without Eros, sexual desire is mainly about us, right? It's about our jollies, our momentary rush. Uh, but when romantic love is present, those same sexual desires become more and more about the beloved. Is she fulfilled? Is he truly with me? Uh, when it's working properly, it's an otherward movement. Now, the Bible is full of pictures of romantic love, although it doesn't always get called out, you know, in, in neon. Uh, 
we hear a lot about it, especially in the Old Testament. In Genesis, we read, And Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of his mother Sarah, and so she became his wife, and he loved her. Okay, this is a total kind of enfolding sort of love. Later on, we're told that Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed only like a few days to him because of his love for her. And the word that gets used there in the Hebrew is, is the same as, as eros in the New Testament. In the book of Judges, we hear that Samson fell in love with a woman whose name was Delilah. That didn't end well, as you may recall. And the writer of Proverbs says, and I quote, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. That's how I think about Amy all the time. May you ever, may you ever be intoxicated with her. May you ever be intoxicated with her. In every one of these passages, you get a glimpse of the dizzying nature of romantic love. And affection doesn't do that. You, you, you feel the affection, storge, that kind of love. You, you're, you're amused. You may be momentarily delighted. In, in friendship, in philia love, you, you feel the, the, a bond, a significant kind of bond with the other person. But romance is intoxicating. I mean, we talk about falling in love. It's like falling into the pool, right? You're suddenly, you're off of your balance. You're swirling around uh, in this stuff. It's just an amazing experience. I think of the scene in the, in the book and movie Twilight in which uh, a friend is talking to the main character, Bella, about the effect that she can see that Edward, the other protagonist, uh, actually a vampire, is having on her. And she says, he's like a drug for you, Bella. Edward's like a drug for you. You know, and you get the sense, yeah, he is. I mean, she is just enraptured by this guy. She can't get another fix fast enough because of the intoxicating power of, of what uh, attracts her to him. And, and this is the very same idea that's being written about years early, thousands of years before in Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. I mean, the buzz level with romance is like, wow, wow. And this is why when Cupid's arrow strikes somebody, you see these little love bubbles rising up. You know what I mean? You've seen the cartoon, right? It's like champagne bubbles rising up. It suggests the intoxicating power of romance. Um, so is there anything nicer than that kind of intoxication? I mean, are you just being prudes about this? I mean, this is good. <laughs> is it not fun to be in love, to be in the pool? so exciting. Suddenly you see this other person through love's version of beer goggles. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that person now. You know, there's, they, they are just perfection. They, they're so smart. They're so strong. They're so beautiful. They're so talented. They're so right for me. 
they will make such a great accessory for me, though I don't think about it really in those terms. I'm just so fascinated. I feel woozy around them. I can't get close enough or be together often enough with this particular person. I want to give my whole self to this other person. You know, this is, the, this is what goes on with romance. And the only danger of this sort of intoxication is that it can lead to a sort of drunk driving in relationships. Uh, it can an impaired judgment of sorts in, in relationships. In her best-selling book, uh, Eat, Love, Pray, Elizabeth Gilbert writes this, I have a history of making decisions very quickly about men. I've always fallen in love fast and without measuring risks. I have this tendency not only to see the best in everyone, but, and this is the key part, to assume that everyone is emotionally capable of reaching his highest potential. I have fallen in love more times than I care to count with the highest potential of a man rather than with the man himself. Ooh. Some of us are resonating. We've been to this movie, right? Many times, she says, in romance, I have been a victim of my own optimism. Now, Gilbert, I think, is pointing to something really important there and worth our thinking about. Because the feelings that come with romance are just so strong that they can blind us to the sin, to the not-yetness, um, to the ambivalences and ambiguities in the other person. It's why the commercial says these days when you see the couple, wouldn't it be great if everybody actually said what was really true? <laughs> You've seen those commercials uh, in, in, in the dating world. This is also why divorce recovery counselors always encourage couples, um, particularly if they're, they're, they're coming off of a, of a very dry experience in relationship, and they're just so thirsty for uh, connection. They counsel them not to, to go down the wedding aisle until they've been through four seasons together. To, to allow time for the intensity of that romantic intoxication to disappoint to the point where you're, you're seeing more clearly uh, who this person really is. The, the intoxication of Eros impairs our, our judgment or our steering in other ways too. And I love the way C.S. Lewis makes this point. He says, Eros, honored without reservation and obeyed unconditionally, becomes a demon. Eros, in other words, that is not subject to higher guidance, um, becomes the, the preeminent thing that we obey. And, and, and it exercises an almost demonic power on us. How many of us know people, or have been people, who got so infatuated with, with somebody else that they sacrificed the covenant they had made with another person? Or, you know, you see this all the time in the teenage world, you know, they're so mad about her or him, they forsake their friends or they leave behind the care they ought to be giving to their parents. And then they look back later on when suddenly they've come down from the high and they say, what was I doing? I've sacrificed so much 
so stupidly. If we're not careful, we can come to worship the feeling of being in love. We can worship it. We can make it the highest thing for us. And as followers of Jesus, we know that anytime you put anything as the highest thing that you obey that isn't God, it's called a what? It's an idol. Yeah, love, romance, is probably one of the most popular idols of our time. And people are sacrificing all kinds of promises and, and uh, wisdom uh, for the sake of obeying and paying their allegiance to this love idol. And, and having that warm, dizzying, bubbly feeling becomes the sort of the measure of everything for us. And it, it leads us to look, some of us who are even in this room right now, listening to my voice right now, who are married, for whom those bubbly feelings are not there right now, start to think to themselves, well, maybe I have the wrong relationship. Maybe I should upgrade. <laughs> this one isn't working. It doesn't have all the features. But in the name of this idolatry, so many people walk away from relationships, which with perseverance could have led to an enormously satisfying life again. Uh, but they've gone in to chase after that idol, that feeling. In Cassandra Clare's romance novel, City of Glass, the main character Clary is staring into the eyes of her paramour, a very handsome man named Jace. And Jace says to her, there is no pretending. There is no pretending, Clary. I love you and I will love you until I die. And if there's life after that, I'll love you then. I'll love you even then. And on one level, that is such a fantastic promise. It's a beautiful promise. It's an almost godlike promise if you think about it. This, I mean, this is the stuff God says to us. I will love you forever. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always. I am for you always. And lovers make these kinds of commitments, these protestations of permanency. But, but what I didn't tell you in the story is that Jace, who's saying these things, is a teenager. How many of you have ever been teenagers or are? <laughs> so you know what happens. How many times do you fall in love along the way before you find that covenantal love? A lot of times. I counted eight times in my own life story what I felt for and I had with Mary, two Pams, three Jennifers, <laughs> Linda, <laughs> splendid people all. <laughs> I was certain at the time was forever love. You know, I'm going to love you forever. There's no chance we'll ever leave each other. This is what I felt. And it was just it was so true to my soul. I was as certain as Jace. I felt like an undying love was moving from the eternal realm, using my body and pouring out towards this person. That's what it felt like. But as C.S. Lewis writes, the truth is Eros is the most mortal of all loves. Eros is the one you can count on to die at some point or diminish at some point along the journey. 
The world rings with complaints of his fickleness. <laughs> Isn't that true? In light of his protestations of permanency. So what this means is that it should not actually surprise us if our marriage or our dating relationships experience a certain intermittency in the level of romance. We should expect that. Uh, what couples need to do in moments when eros evaporates or diminishes is to lean on the other loves. Lean on the affection. Ask God to show you, what is it about this other person I can enjoy? What is, what's special, unique, wonderful about this other person? And then lean on the friendship. What are the values we share, the things we love doing together? Have we stopped playing? Let's get out there and do more of that. And as we'll talk about next week, there's, there's a highest kind of love we want to be leaning into. But as my own wife and I can attest, many others here, if you look for reasons for affection, for shared interest and values and the kind of commitments that are key to friendship, you'll be surprised at how Eros and even Venus comes back. It resurges in its proper time. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We must do the works of Eros when Eros isn't present. We must do the things Eros would do even when the feeling of Eros isn't present. Lewis Smedes calls this creative hypocrisy. And I, I like that. Uh, the Bible would say it's called obedience. Uh, it's called obedience. We need to treat the other as central to our life, as the, as the one most beautiful, handsome, worthy, uh, talented person in our life, even when our emotional or our personal reality is a little bit distant from that. We don't feel it quite the same way as we did at another moment. We need to do that. And so we will serve them, and we will celebrate them, and we will kiss them and make love to them and care for them as we might at the height of Eros have done. Does that seem crazy to you? That calling? Does that seem at all crazy? You know, when I was in middle school, I, um, I fell hard for a girl named Arden. I didn't mention Arden earlier. Maybe nine, <laughs> nine times. Uh, so, she is this ravishing beauty, and uh, I cannot stop thinking about her. I am s just tumbling in the pool. And, um, and so I have saved up $200 in my little savings account, and I decide I have got to give her something to show my love. And so I get on the train with one, my best buddy, and we go down into Manhattan, and, and we go searching around the streets, and I find this music box, this inlaid wooden music box. It is so beautiful. And when you open it up, it plays, you know, Claire de Lune or something incredibly romantic. And I just, ah, I swoon over this box because it reminds me so much of her. And I take that box home with me. I shell out everything I have. I buy this box. And the, and the next Monday, I go in school and I find her in the cafeteria and I present her with the music box. And she looks confused, <laughs> really confused. 
because she hardly knows me and probably doesn't really like me. And it was like the old temptation song, just my imagination, right? It's just running away with me. That's, that's what it was. Here's a question for you. Was I foolish to have done that? Probably. But you know, the Bible teaches that um, there are times when we're called to be fools. In fact, um, Paul says in one of his letters to the church at Corinth that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness, the vulnerability, the open-heartedness and generosity of God is stronger than human strength. You see, when eros is flowing through us, and, and, and it, it creates this willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the beloved. And it makes us ready to make that person's flourishing our prime directive in life, to give whatever it takes to lift them up, even if they turn their backs on us, even if they turn away. When that happens, something really mysterious and wonderful is actually going on. When love is moving through us in that particular way, something very wonderful is going on. And I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. In one high bound, love overleaps the massive wall of our selfishness. It makes our desires altruistic all of a sudden. It plants the interests of another person in the center of our being. And spontaneously and without effort, we fulfill the scripture's law, at least toward one person, by actually loving our neighbor as ourself. And this romantic love, says Lewis, is truly like love himself. For a moment, we become a conduit of love himself, potentially. In other words, Cupid's arrow is not only designed to pierce us, it's designed to point us. It's designed to indicate the direction. And as fickle and fleeting and faltering as romance is, it points us towards that orientation of total commitment to the interest, the well-being, the flourishing, the salvation of others that is the kind of commitment that is the essence of what the Bible calls charity or agape, the highest kind of love that we'll be exploring next week. So in the words of the Bible, eros brings us into the chambers of the king. It gives us a taste of the passion of the king's love for you and for me and for this world. Uh, it, it makes us capable for a moment of feeling something of that orientation at a human scale. And romance helps to ready us, says Lewis, for the day when love himself rules in us without rival.
Please pray with me. Gracious God, God of love, move through us, we pray, in wisdom, in grace, with the kind of commitment we see most perfectly in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.